Honor to have you here. <clears throat> Revelation 20, and uh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I have to go through and debunk some of the, the erroneous views of the millennium before we get started. Now, if you're a logical person, how many logical people do we have in here? You're like, do I raise my hand or don't I? I you know, you, you don't know what, what's coming next. But uh, the logical thing when you're reading the book of Revelation is to understand that after chapter 19 comes what? 20. And in chapter, y'all did good on that. It was kind of weak, but in chapter 19, we read that heaven was opened and that Jesus Christ the Son of God, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He returns to the earth. You, you remember that? Hadn't been that long ago, has it? Just one week ago. He came to the earth. So the next logical thing would be what? The kingdom, right? For a thousand years. But we've got all these views. And then after that, Revelation 21 and 22, is the new heavens and the new earth. But for some reason, some people don't believe that. And they, uh, there's some erroneous views. I'll show you the, the, the three most popular views <coughs> on the millennial kingdom. Well, I'll tell you what, before I wade into these muddy waters, let me ask Preacher Larry if he'll pray for me. <laughs> and pray for all of us. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be back with us too. Glad you're feeling better. Um, there's three major views on the millennium. One, uh, I call it the pie-in-the-sky view, is post-millennialism. And this is the idea that the world is going to get better and better uh, through the preaching of the gospel, and eventually everybody gets saved, and everybody in the government is a Christian. And that's going to happen any day now, right? <laughs> okay. That's the post-millennial view. The whole world uh, gets Christianized, and then Jesus comes back. That's the post-millennial view. So think of it this way. It's like we bake the cake and then Jesus comes and puts the cherry on top. You know, Is that the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard of? Now this was popular actually until about the, 19, uh, the early 1900s and, and something happened. You know what it was called? World War I. <laughs> and they realized the world wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And the Bible predicts this. The second major view is what we call amillennialism. The A in front of it means No. Like a theist is somebody that believes in God, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. So this negates the millennium. Uh, this states that there's no literal uh, thousand-year reign, uh, but, it's, that, but it's, it's only symbolic, you know, that Christ is ruling and reigning in our hearts. And He is, of course. But, um, but here's, the, here's the biggie. It takes the promises that God made to Israel, in particular to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to King David, and it says, well, those are no good. Um, uh, because those guys, were, they, they were not able to, to do what God wanted them to do. And so now God has given everything that he promised Abraham to the church. We call that replacement theology. And I call it gobbledygook because that's what it is. It's bad. It's bad because it, it impugns the integrity of God. It, it, it's, a, it's a serious issue. And then we have the right view, which I have highlighted, number three. By the way, these are not salvation issues. You know, most of your major denominations hold to amillennialism, uh, surprisingly enough. Pro maybe some of your favorite preachers do. So this is not something that we, you know, we're going to fuss and fight about. It's one of those things where I just say, you can go your way and I'll go his way. 
Some of you like that, and some of you didn't. That's okay. Uh, but premillennialism, and that is that Christ returns to the earth. He sets up a real, literal, physical kingdom for a literal period of a thousand years. Now, uh, now in Revelation uh, chapter 20, you'll find this phrase, a thousand years, six times. If God says it one time, pay attention. If he says it twice, pay attention. But he says six times that this period lasts a thousand years. And so uh, there's no reason for us to interpret it any other way than what God says. All right. <clears throat> Let's go to Revelation 1. Excuse me, Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, and I saw, and by the way, this is a sequential thing. Some of your translations will say, then I saw. It's the next thing after Christ returns to the earth, okay? The chapter verses and divisions were not in the original manuscript. They've been put in there later. So you, ha you can't divorce, uh, you can't separate 20 from 19 and 21. So in verse 1 it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain uh, in his hand. Um, one more thing on the millennium, and I'll get this out, out of the way. Robert Thomas, uh, we're not talking about Conway's son here, but the, uh, although he's a great theologian too, Robert Thomas wrote one of the best two-volume commentaries on Revelation. So if you've got a few extra shekels, you might want to buy that. I don't agree with him on everything, but I'm sure he didn't lose any sleep over that, that fact. But here's what Robert Thomas says concerning the thousand-year period of time. If the writer wanted a very large symbolic number, why did he not use 144,000? 200 million, which he uses in other places in Revelation. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Or an incalculably large number. I practiced that several times and it still didn't come out right. But a huge number, okay? Remember in Revelation 7, it says there was a multitude that no man could number. <clears throat> the fact is that no number in Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. On the other hand, non-symbolic usage of numbers is not the exception, but what? The rule. There's seven literal churches. There's 144,000 sealed uh, from the tribes uh, of Israel. There's 42 months. There's 1,260 days. There's a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, and so forth. Okay, so let's deal with this issue of, um, in verse 1, says uh, that there's an angel comes. He's not named. Doesn't call him Michael, Gabriel. Presumably just an ordinary angel, as if they were ordinary, but uh, an angel. And he's got a key of the bottomless pit. Some of your translations are going to say the abyss uh, because the Greek word is the abusos. All right, who wants to be my victim uh, to help read today? Uh, any, many, mighty Adam. Okay. I noticed Mark came and he dropped that microphone off. He didn't hold on to it. <clears throat> so um, would you read that off the board there from Luke uh, chapter 8 about the abyss? Luke 8.30. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Okay, so these demons, they didn't want to go to the abyss. Apparently, it's a place of confinement for demons or fallen angels. 
and they were begging Jesus not to go. It's used seven times in the book of Revelation. Imagine that. That number seven just crops up uh, over and over again. By the way, this is also the place that we're told that the beast comes out of. He rises out of the abyss. Uh, out of the abyss. Okay. So let's go to verse 2. <clears throat> and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. And it's like God says, I don't want you to, uh, to misunderstand who we're talking about here. So four different names. Christ had four different names in, the pre in chapter 19. Uh, and bound him for how long? A thousand years, right? No reason to interpret it any other way than what it is. A thousand years. Now, if we're in the millennium, as the amillennialists say, if we're already in the millennium, then Satan should be bound. Is Satan bound? Well, if he is, he's got a mighty long leash on him. He's not bound, is he? Experience tells us otherwise. I know what some of you are thinking. No, he's not bound. He rode to church with me this morning. Don't look at your spouse. <laughs> Satan here, <laughs> all married people got that. Single people, you'll, you'll catch on later. Satan is on death row here, okay? He's on, the devil's on death row. The dragon, that emphasizes his ferocious nature. You know, he's, he's not your buddy. He's out to get you. He's the serpent. He's the first one that lied. To, he told the first lie, and he's been lying ever since then. He's the devil, diabolos in Greek. He's the accuser. He's the one that's always condemning you and bringing up your past. And when the devil brings up your past, you need to bring up his future. <laughs> my, 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 my first pastor that trained me, he was really into spiritual warfare and stuff, and he had some ideas that were probably not quite biblical, but he said anytime he would stay in a strange motel room, uh, you ever stay in a motel room and you can just feel the spirits in there? You feel what's go, what that stuff's going on, you know, in there that shouldn't have. He said he'd open up his Bible to Revelation chapter twenty. He said just in case the devil wanted to come in there, at least he'd be reminded of his future. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, your mileage may vary. You know, do do as you will with that. Satan, the word in Hebrew means adversary. <clears throat> First Peter five, eight, says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil." is currently bound. Is that what it says? <laughs> no. It says he's going about as a roaring, what? Lion. And he's walking about. He's not bound. He's walking about seeking whom he may do what? Devour. Devil's not your buddy. He's out to kill you and destroy you. All right. Revelation 3. Says this angel cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, and shut him up. I like that. I know that's not what it means the way I'm intending it, <laughs> but it won't be glad not to have to listen to him for a thousand years. But he shut him up inside the, the abyss and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. Well, let me ask you this: Is Satan still deceiving the nations? Well, just turn on the TV if you don't believe it. Watch the news if you dare. He should deceive the nations no more until the what? A thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be. You notice it says he must be? We'll discuss that in a moment. 
He must be loosed for a little season. We're not told exactly how long, but he's going to be loosed for a little season. It's interesting now how the roles are reversed. Remember when Christ died and they placed him in the tomb? Uh, Daniel in the lion's den is a type of this. You can see it prefigured in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, Adam, would you read that? Uh, I just wanted you to see the, 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 uh, the roles have now been reversed. By the way, when Christ came out of the tomb, they didn't roll the stone away so that he could get out. I, I heard Max Licato say uh, the reason that the stone was rolled away was not so that he could get out, but so we could come in. And I like that. Jesus, did, Jesus wasn't even in a hurry. You know, when he, got, he rose from the dead, he's folding the napkin up, you know. He's in control of the whole situation. All right, Adam, I'm sorry. That's fine. Matthew 27, 65 and 66. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sculpture sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. How did that work out for him? <laughs> Not too good, did it? <clears throat> okay. Now, fun stuff here. Verse 4, uh, back in Revelation 20. And I saw thrones. We're only going to verse 10 today, in case you're wondering when you're going to get to the steakhouse. <laughs> We're only going to verse 10 today. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. Now, we're not told who they are. But the book of Revelation, if you haven't figured it out yet, assumes that you've read the rest of the Bible. And assumes that you've been reading Revelation. <laughs> that you didn't just start in chapter 20. In chapter 19, Christ is on a white horse. Remember that? Y'all are not looking very responsive this morning. I need, I need something from you. Who was with him? Who was with him on the white horse? The saints, right? We're coming in there with him. Okay. So wouldn't it be logical if Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we're coming with him, when John sees thrones... Who's going to be sitting on the thrones with him? Us, right? Not just us, but, the, but, but all the Old Testament saints. And here's where we're going to have some fun. I'm going to go through some slides <clears throat> fairly quickly. First group is the Old Testament saints. We're not going to leave them out. Adam, you want to read that? Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Leave that mic hot, brother, because we're going to roll through these. So the, the, uh, the in, uh, excuse me, Daniel saw the Old Testament saints. The, 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 uh, the thrones were given unto them. And that's going to be glorious. Oh, it's going to be so glorious. The second group, is Jesus and David. Now, Jesus is the king of kings, but David is, the, is going to be the vice regent. And there's several places. I've only got one up here for the sake of time. Only one. But there's several places that says that King David is going to rule over Israel. And by the way, when Ezekiel wrote this, David had already died. Okay? So he's speaking in the future. All right, Adam, would you read Ezekiel um, 30, 37, 24? And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. 
They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statues and do them. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's Luke one thirty two, where Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus is going to rule on the throne of David. Now, did that happen in the first coming? No, it didn't. Is it going to happen? You better believe it. You know why? Because God keeps his promises. I tell you what, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 37. I'm not letting you off that easy this morning. I did a lot of the work for you. You say, well, that's what you get paid to do. You know, I get paid to be good. You guys are good for nothing. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I've been wanting to use that joke for a long time, and I thought I'd roll it out there. What did I say, Ezekiel 37? All right. By the way, that was Professor Howard Hendricks. He, he's the one who coined that phrase from Dallas Theological Seminary. So if you get mad at anybody, get mad at him. I'm just repeating <laughs> Ezekiel 37, look at, uh, Adam, would you read 24 through, um, 24 through 28? David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall be one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and obey, observe my statues and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land, and I have given to Jacob, my servant, where the fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children. And their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be in their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. My tabernacle shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Oh, boy. You been watching what's going on in the Middle East? Hamas says they're going to drive Israel from the, river, uh, from the river to the sea. I got news for them. God's going to protect Israel. There's a future for them. But I want you to see that David uh, is going to rule over them. And it also says that David's a prince. He's a king and a prince. He's a prince because he's going to rule under Jesus. Jesus is going to be the, the, uh, the, the top ruler. Number three, the apostles. We're still talking about the thrones. Adam, would you read that for me? Uh, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye, shall, ye, sh ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, when you see the regeneration there, you should think the millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ. Let me ask you, have the twelve apostles ruled on twelve thrones yet? No, are they going to? Yes, because God keeps his promises. You're all getting excited yet. This is exciting stuff. You say, well, so far you ain't said nothing about us. Voila. Group number four, the church. 
1 Corinthians 6, 2. Would you read that out? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things than pertain to this life? If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Second Peter 2.12. And that's a promise. Now, I don't believe everybody's going to reign. I, I believe that the rewards will be proportionate to the service uh, that, excuse me, the, the way that we live our lives on this earth. The Bible says there will be some who are saved yet by fire. They have no reward. But, but those that do, they're going to rule and reign with Christ. Uh, continuing group number four. There's, there's three different scriptures here where Jesus promises um, that the saints are going to rule. Revelation 2.26, 3.21, and 5.10. 5.10, by the way, is the 24 elders when they're singing their song before the throne of God. You want to read those out? And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in, the, in my throne, even as I also overcame, and I am yet set down with my Father in his throne, and hast made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Where are we going to reign? On the earth. It's not some spiritual kingdom. It's a physical kingdom, literally on the earth. By the way, that second scripture, uh, Revelation uh, 3.21 that's written to the church at Laodicea. Now, how was their report card? Not too good, was it? But that shows you that no church is too far gone for God to reach out and bring them to repentance. I'm praying that God's going to bring a lot of these churches to repentance that have strayed from the truth. Group number five, tribulation martyrs. Go back to Revelation 20. And look at the end of verse 4. Uh, and he says, I saw the souls, that's their spirit, of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their heads or in their hands. And they lived, that word means to come to life. It's a resurrection term. They came to life, some of your translations will say. They lived and they reigned with Christ for how long? All right, I would direct your attention to the board, uh, the wall there. Um, got a couple of quotes from John MacArthur. You want to read those out? <laughs> okay, but I'm not reading those words in parentheses. The Greek word there is pelikizo. Pelikizo. Beheaded literally means to cut off with an axe and is a figure of speech meaning to put to death or to execute. When used in connection with the physical death, the root form of ezizon or zao is the, the verb form. It's used throughout the New Testament to describe physical body resurrection. Yeah, these terms describe physical resurrection. You know, the problem with the amillennialist view is that in this thousand year reign, you've got people being resurrected physically. It's not just a spiritual thing. So the tribulation saints are the fifth group. All right, verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again until when? The thousand years were finished. 
This is the first resurrection. The Bible speaks of the resurrection, the first resurrection in several uh, different ways. Adam, you're getting a workout today, and I'm sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> Luke 14, 14. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the just. Now in Acts 24, 15, uh, Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon there. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So there's two resurrections. One is of the just, the other is the unjust. We'll talk about it next week. It's very unpleasant to think about. Now the use of resurrection here, anastasis, is further evidence that it's a physical resurrection. The word is always used in connection with a physical resurrection. All right, let's, let's talk about the orders of the first resurrection. Uh, before we do, Adam, would you read that uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. All right, notice this is every man in his own order. There's different orders of the first resurrection. How do I know that? Because the first one's already happened. And who was that? Jesus Christ. Right now, he's the only one that's been resurrected from the dead. Are we all on the same page? Y'all look confused. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the only one that's been resurrected. The second group, and we could probably combine two and three I didn't, and the reason I didn't is because Paul says the dead in Christ rise first. And that's, but it happens at the same time, but for some reason, Paul says the dead in Christ rise first. They're actually at an advantage. Okay? And the old joke about the Baptist is that, that means that the Presbyterians will go first in the rapture because they're the dead in Christ. But if you're Presbyterian, I, I apologize. That, I didn't make that up. And I think it's a very poor taste. But... <laughs> Another preacher I heard, he said, well, the reason that the dead in Christ rise first is because they've got farther to go. They've got a six-foot disadvantage on, on everybody. I don't know. But uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Oh, boy. That means there's going to be some Christians that don't die. And guess what? That might just be us. Some people will say, well, Preacher Henry, I'd like for you to preach my funeral. I said, I'd do you one better. How about we just go up in the rapture together? I'm about tired of doing funerals. You know, I'd, I'd rather just go in the rapture. Now, God's in control of those things. No man knows the day or the hour. All right, let's talk about another resurrected group. Let's don't forget about them. They're called the two witnesses. 
And there's a strong indication that it could be Moses and Elijah. I wouldn't be 100% dogmatic. I'd be like 99.999. Anyway, uh, would you read Revelation 11, 11, and 12? And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they shall ascend... And they ascended up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies behind beheld them. That's resurrection, folks. They stood on their feet. They didn't just go in a, as a ghost into heaven as a spirit. They stood on their feet. That's resurrection. Well, we got one more group. Anybody want to hazard a guess who they might be? Old Testament saints. Can't leave them out. Um. Adam, would you read Isaiah 26, 19 and hold off on Daniel? Okay. And the dead men shall live together with my dead bodies, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. All right. Now let's all turn to Daniel 12 together. Daniel 12, let's all go there together. You go Isaiah and Jeremiah. Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel 12. Adam, would you read verses 1 and 2? I left out one on the board because I didn't have room. To, I didn't want to mess up the slide. Uh, whatever. <laughs> 1 and 2 there. At that time, Michael shall stand up, and the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at the time of your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Keep going. Oh, yeah. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, so now Daniel didn't... He didn't know the time frame there. He wasn't given that. So he didn't know there was going to be a thousand years in verse 2 between those two resurrections. We know that from the book of Revelation. By the way, the book of Revelation, um, chapter 20 is not all that could be said about the millennium. The Old Testament is filled with information about the millennium. Um, in, in Daniel 12, you notice that very first verse. Notice it says, at that time, Michael should stand up. And that's during the tribulation period. Notice it's a time of trouble, such as never been. That's a.k.a. the great tribulation period. So the resurrection of the Old Testament saints happens after the tribulation period. Do you see that? After that, uh, <clears throat> in verse 2. So the, Revelation 20 doesn't tell us everything we want to know about the millennium. I want to teach some on the millennium on Wednesday nights for the next few Wednesday nights if the Lord will allow me to do that. And I think you'll find it fascinating because um, there's very little teaching about it. But the Old Testament is filled with teaching about the millennial kingdom. What Revelation does, Revelation is kind of like the, the uh, 
I've, I've used this uh, analogy. It's like the lid on a jigsaw puzzle. It shows you how all the pieces fit together. So what Revelation tells us is the duration of the millennium. Uh, the Old Testament doesn't tell us how long it lasts. The book of Revelation tells us how long it lasts. And how long does it last? A thousand years. Very good. <clears throat> so let's go back to Revelation 20. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios. It means happy. So you could read this way. Happy and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Uh, I, heard, I read John Phillips' commentary this week, and he said that one reason that the saints are not happy is because they're not holy. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in that. Reminds, reminds me of that old uh, hymn, you know, Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And then I was listening to the Gaithers this morning. Lori was probably getting tired of me playing it on repeat. <laughs> but I was listening to them. They were saying, everybody will be happy. Happy over there. Okay, I'll stop. Some of you are like, please don't finish. <laughs> There's a reason I don't sing in the choir. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe I will one day when I get to heaven. I'll sing in the choir. But I was listening to that, and I thought, you know, that's going to be great. And for some of you, this will be the first time I ever get to see you smile. Because <laughs> you'll walk around like you're miserable. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to be happy over there. Hallelujah. How are you going to recognize <laughs> Look at Adam. He's just over there tickled. How are you going to recognize me in heaven? It's because I'm going to be grinning like a Cheshire cat. I'll be the one that's going to be so happy. And I'll tell you why I'm happy. We go back to, uh, back to chapter 20, verse 6. Uh, blessed and holy, happy and holy is the one in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Now there's different words for power uh, in the New Testament. One is the Greek word dunamis. You probably, some of you are familiar with that. It's where we get our word dynamo, dynamite. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word exousia, most often translated as authority. The second death has no authority over the believer. <laughs> I'll tell you a little story, and it'll be a quick one, I promise. When I was younger and I didn't have as much sense as I do now, my hair was long and my thoughts were short. <laughs> I was riding around one day, and I noticed blue lights flashing in my rearview mirror. And the officer pulled me over. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I did what you all do. We get that selective amnesia there. <laughs> I said, I don't know what I did, officer. Maybe you can just tell me what I did. He said, well, you were going this, and this is what the speed limit is. And before I could plead anything, he said, license and registration, please. <laughs> I said, great. So he, he goes straight to his car, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's going to write me for sure. He's going to write me. Well, he comes back. He comes back with a little pink slip. He said, I'm giving you a warning today, son. I said, well, thank you, Ossifer. <laughs> thank you. And he said, the reason I'm not writing you a ticket is not because I don't want to. He said, I want to write you a ticket. But he said, I'm a city police officer, and we're outside of my jurisdiction here, here in the country. And he says, I don't have the authority to write you a ticket. 
he said, so go and speed no more. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> See? Now, if I'd had a warrant for my arrest or something, you know, he could have wrote me. He could have took me to jail. But he didn't write that ticket. He said he would get thrown out because it was outside of his jurisdiction. It was outside of his exousia. And see, the Bible says that happy and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no jurisdiction. There's no authority. You know why? Because when I came to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that I was justified. That's a legal term. It means that I was declared righteous. And over in Romans 8, it says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Jesus said in John's gospel, I have passed from death unto life. That sentence has already been passed. End of verse 6. No authority over the believer. And they shall reign with him for how long? I, I'm seeing a pattern here. How about you? Verse 7. And when the thousand years, not 999, when the thousand years are expired... Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Now notice he doesn't break out. He's released. He doesn't escape. This is not Alcatraz. This is, uh, this is he's being unleashed out of his prison. Now I want you to think about something for a moment. There's a 75-day interval when Jesus Christ returns um, to the earth. I want you to see it. Go with me to Daniel 12. I'm sorry. One more time. This, this will probably be the last flip I make you do. Well, I'm not making you do anything, but I, the last I'll request of you. Daniel 12. One more time. And there's a curious passage of Scripture. I don't hear a lot of preaching on it. And, uh, but it's not without significance. Daniel 12, verses 9, <clears throat> 9 through 12. 9 through 12. Adam, would you read that? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from that time... That daily sacrifice is taken away, an abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, how long is the last half of the tribulation period? It's 1,260 days, right? Three and a half years. But notice it says that there's... Uh, 1,290 days to cleanse the temple mount from the abomination of desolation. It also took 30 days to cleanse the temple, I think, during the days of uh, um, the Maccabean revolt. But notice in verse 12, there's an interesting number there. It's a different number, isn't it? 1,335. So there's an interval there of 75 days. And during that time, there's several things that are happening. The, uh, the uh, temple mount's being cleansed. And um, <clears throat> um, the sheep and the, the goat judgment takes place. 
So let's look at that. Remember now, when Jesus Christ comes in, and he, uh, no unbelievers are going to enter into the kingdom. That's why the thousand years is going to be so great. It's going to start out good anyway. Because no unbelievers are going to enter into the kingdom. <clears throat> so Israel will be in faith. Now a third of them will be, excuse me, two-thirds will be killed. But Israel will be in faith, according to Zechariah 13, 9, Romans 11, 26. Surviving Gentiles will be judged at the sheep and goat judgment. That's in Matthew 25, 31. And pay attention to that because it deals with how people are treating Israel, uh, the Jewish brothers. Saved Gentiles will enter into the kingdom in mortal bodies. Okay? So you're going to people who survived the tribulation, and they will go into the, the kingdom with a, a mortal body. Unbelieving Gentiles, or the goats, will be killed and sent to eternal punishment. Now Satan's going to have a whole new group uh, to try his thing. One last, uh, one last revolt. Now here's what's interesting to me is that for a thousand years the world will, be, will finally live in a utopia. There's not going to be a crime problem anymore because Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. Um, sin is going to be at a minimum. The earth is going to be renovated to a large degree. People, the lifespan of people is going to be a long time. I think Isaiah says that if somebody dies 100 years old, it'll be like a baby dies. It's going to go back to like it was before the flood. And yet, sin is still alive and well. Go back to Revelation 20 and we'll close. Revelation 20. After the thousand years, verse 8 says, Satan goes out to deceive the nations. The Greek word is ethnos. It means Gentiles. Which are in the four quarters of the earth. Some say four corners. Doesn't mean the earth is flat. It just means it's the whole world. Gog and Magog. That's reminiscent of Ezekiel 38, but it's not the same. To gather them together for what? Battle. To fight against God. Can you imagine that? To fight against God. After living in a perfect environment for a thousand years. These people want to rebel against God. That just goes to show you that no matter how perfect the conditions are on earth, it does not cure the sin in the human heart. And that's why all efforts at social justice, though are, are well-intentioned, will never achieve their goals. Because the real problem is not man's environment, it's mankind himself. It's a sin problem. He deceives the nations. Verse 9 says, They went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. What city was that? Jerusalem. It's amazing how much Satan hates Jerusalem, isn't it? He's been in the abyss for a thousand years, and he still hates Jerusalem. He's not been reformed, not one bit, has he? And fire came down from heaven uh, and devoured them. Then we get to verse 10, which is the death of the devil. <clears throat> and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And notice what it says, 
where the beast and the false prophet are. Back up to chapter 19. Same book. Adam, would you read verse 20? Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. They were thrown alive in there. And now a thousand years later, what does it say? They're still there. The Bible does not teach annihilationism, that you just cease to exist. It teaches that hell and lake of fire is a place of eternal torment. It's a place of mental torment. Daniel 12, 2, Matthew 8, 12. It's a place of physical torment. Matthew 25, 41. A place of unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 43. A place where the worm never dies. Mark 9, 48. A place of eternal destruction separated from God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. A place of torment day and night forever and ever. Chapter 20, verse 10. I can't think of a more awful fate than that. And yet, people will go there in spite of God's every effort to keep you and I from going to a place like that. Matthew 25, verse 41. Will you read that, Adam? Then he shall say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. Hell was not meant for you. Lake of fire was never meant for you. Who was it made for? The devil and his angels. When God created that place, he never created it with people in mind. He created it for the devil and for his angels. And so if you and I go there, It'll be against God's will. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People go. People choose to go. And here's the good news. John 5, 24, and here's the last scripture. Adam, would you read that? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall come unto the condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Wow. In a moment of time, we can plead with God right now and we can take hell and the lake of fire off the table to use the analogy there. We can just take that off the table. If you will repent, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, trust Him fully, ask Him to make you a new creation, to change you from the inside out. Listen, this is not about putting a band-aid on the old you. Jesus said you must be born again. Old things had to pass away. All things become new. Now there's a process of sanctification that lasts a lifetime. But in a moment of time, you can repent of your sin. Say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't, 
I don't want to go to this awful place of torment. I want to come to the foot of the cross and receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And He'll save you. That's a promise. Anybody here that wants to be saved today, you don't have to leave here without salvation. If you came here wondering if you could go to heaven when you die or go in the rapture, don't leave this place. Don't leave it without settling this once and for all. Because the window of opportunity is closing for each one of us. Every day we get closer and closer to the day of death or the day of the rapture. Would you stand? I would hate to face him at the great white throne. We'll talk about that next week. And look at his nail-scarred hands. And look at the awful price he paid on the cross. And say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I didn't want that. And have him say, depart from me, I never knew you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross. He rose again the third day. And if you and I will put our trust in him, completely trust him for salvation, not our good works, which are filthy rags, but if you'll trust him completely in the finished work of Calvary, you and I can have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We can spend eternity forever, and we will be happy over there. Amen. Would you come just as you are?